There is a well-known practice among many endurance athletes, uh, long-distance bikers and runners and swimmers, uh, that they use when the, they're racing or during particularly hard training efforts. Uh, during this kind of effort, there is often a point when it gets really hard, when the effort gets tough. And there's a voice that's heard often in the back of your mind or right in the front of your mind that says things like, this is too hard. I never want to do this again. That looks like a nice bench. I could be taking a nap right now. When these voices present themselves, the athlete needs a strong word to counter. And often athletes will have a short phrase or a set of phrases that they call their mantra, a word that they have prepared in advance when the race gets hard to counter that negative self-talk. Sometimes mantras sound like, you're getting stronger and faster, stronger with every step, or something as simple as, get it done. Sometimes you'll see in races, uh, amateur athletes will have these mantras written on their arms or on their hands to remind themselves, to be a, a present reminder uh, during the race. For some professional athletes, their mantras have become well-known publicly. Uh, I came across one a couple of years ago that really made me stop and think. Uh, this mantra belongs to the German Ironman triathlete Jan Frodeno. Uh, Frodeno is considered by many to be the best the sport has ever produced. Uh, and as such, he's, he's well-sponsored, funded, and he can afford to have his mantra etched with a laser on the inside of his sunglasses. So when, when the race gets hard, he literally looks out into his field of vision and he sees three words. And those three words are, because I can. Because I can. The phrase struck me then, and it still strikes me now, as, as a really quintessentially modern Western slogan. Such a strong emphasis on the individual. Why do I endure? What motivates me to keep going? I motivate me. My self-achievement, my capacity. Why endure? Because I can. In our text this morning out of Hebrews 12, the author of the letter pictures the life of faith as a race, as a hard-run journey. And throughout the letter, the author has been concerned with just this problem, the endurance of his hearers. He wants them to endure in the race of faith, following Jesus, but he is worried that they're, they're tempted to drop out of the race, to listen to that voice that says, just quit. And so he has argued with them and talked with them and tried to compel them to continue. And now at the climactic end of the letter, here in chapter 12, toward the, toward the end, he gives them an image, a powerful image, to hang their hats on, to help them when the race gets tough. I suspect that in our individual lives of running with Jesus, when it gets hard, the mantras and slogans that we get from the world are going to come up severely short. Because I can is gonna be little help to us in those times, in those seasons. And so we're gonna find in this text, we're gonna find other things to put our hope in, other words to tell ourselves in this race with Jesus when it gets hard. 
I suspect that for each of us here, we're probably in, in different places in the way that we're relating to this race of following Jesus. Some of you have come in this morning and you're humming along, you're ticking off the miles and you're feeling good. You're in a season of feeling fruitful and, and good in your, in your faith. Some of you have come in this morning and, and you're in a place where you really are feeling that need to endure. Maybe you're hearing some of those voices to, to tempt you to go off the path. Maybe some of you have been in a season where you've endured in the past and you are just tired and you have sat down in the middle of the track and you're just going no further. And maybe for some of you, you are looking at the race from the outside and you're wondering, you know, is it worth it? Can I step into this race? Is it something that I can see myself running? And I want for each of us, no matter where we are, I want for this word to be, to be one that speaks to us and helps us, prepares us for when the race gets hard. When we're tempted to give in uh, in small and large ways, I suspect that one of, the, one of the primary drivers or the strong words that can tempt us out of the race uh, relies on a feeling of obscurity and isolation, a feeling that we are alone in the race and that our faithfulness or our faithlessness is actually of little consequence either way. What does it really matter if I am faithful in loving this friend who is going through a tough time? What does it really matter if I am faithful in spending regular time studying the scripture or praying? What does it really matter if I resist this temptation in this moment? After all, I'm just one person, and does it make a difference anyway? Into these thoughts, our text speaks loudly, and it gives us a first word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews is here pulling from a common cultural experience that his hearers would have had. It is the common experience of the public games, games like the Olympics or other public games. Uh, similar to our sporting events, the image that he is evoking here is of the grand arena, the grand arena of contest with the thousands around watching the feats of strength going on on the field. Of course, we are the ones in this image who are running the race. We are on the field. We are attempting to endure. And those surrounding us in the stands are the multitude of those who have run the race before us, those who have completed their race, those who then are cheering us on toward faith and endurance. They're called witnesses here. And I think it's worth pausing to consider what that word means in this context. Uh, I think there are a few different shades of the meaning, including probably the one that strikes you first, which is that they were witnesses in their time and place in a faithful way to the power and the works of God. They were witnesses in their lives. That's what describes their faith, faithful journey. But I want to focus on another connotation of that meaning. Uh, yes, they were witnesses then and there, but they are also witnesses here and now. Specifically, they are witnesses to us, right? The picture is the arena cheering on our race. They are all around us, speaking to us, cheering for us. I imagine it as a loud cacophony of powerful encouragement, a sea of words coming our way down through the ages. 
And what are those words? Can you hear them? What is the substance of their message to us? Their words and their lives say, the way of faithful obedience is not an exercise in futility. Your words and works, when done in faith, will not fall to the ground void. The Lord will establish the work of your hands. That is to say, their lives speak a powerful word against the tempter's voice that would make you feel that your race is inconsequential, is small, is happening in a dark corner that doesn't matter. I'm sure that when you imagine that crowd, that great mass of the faithful who have gone before, there are probably particular faces, particular stories that you imagine there. Maybe people you have known who have run in a faithful way that you admire and seek to emulate. Maybe those who you have read about and, and, and learned about. Who is there in your mind's eye? I think of Harriet Tubman. Of course, Tubman, the renowned conductor on the Underground Railroad who risked her own life and freedom after attaining it by escaping from slavery, by, by returning time after time to danger in the South to rescue her fellow slaves. I used to think that I knew Tubman's story, that, that basic outline when I was a kid, uh, but I was surprised to find out as I grew up and learned more about her uh, that Tubman was a devout follower of Jesus. And during those journeys, she was in almost constant communication with God through prayer. Do I hide behind this tree? Do we cross the river now or wait? Do I take this road or that road? She relied on God to direct the actual steps of those journeys. Tubman summed up this method herself with these words, I always told God, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you've got to see me through. Thomas Garrett, a fellow abolitionist and contemporary of Tubman's, uh, said this about her, I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God. This attentiveness to the voice of God was undoubtedly something that had been practiced day in and day out through a regular attentiveness and that then came into play in these moments of crisis in the struggle. During her 19 journeys as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, Tubman rescued over 300 slaves and she never lost a single one. The God that Harriet served is the God that you serve. She stands in the great congregation. She shouts her encouragement. She says, hold steady on him and he will see you through. He will see you through. Your race is not in vain. So when we're weighed down in the race, when the going gets tough, this is the first word that we need to remember. Why endure? Because I am among the great cloud of witnesses. Like their race, 
my race is a witness to a greater story. Like their race, my race is not in vain because I serve the God that they served. Why endure? Because I am among the great cloud of witnesses. And so we run on. And as we run, their encouragement compels us, as the text says, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, just as they sought to do. Here we have the image uh, laying aside the weight, laying aside the sin, sin that clings so closely. We have the image of the runner who has put on the lightest weight, uh, lightest weight clothing, has put on the lightest weight shoes, has put on clothes that will not hold them back, right? Will allow them to run easily and freely. It's a compelling image, uh, the image of the faithful life run, run without encumbrance. But I think when we pause to think about what that image is actually conveying to us, what that analogy actually is, we can get a little bit uncomfortable. Giving up those sins or the weight that that holds us back, of course, is not an easy thing. I wonder if you might just pause for a moment to consider what is it right now in your race? What is it right now in your attempt to live out a faithful obedience that is holding you back, that is weighing you down? What is it specifically that is tripping up your gate or making it hard to run? Of course, removing these things from our lives is painful surgery. This is not an easy thing we are being compelled toward. And so at this moment, we hear another voice, again, another negative self, another voice that would tempt us out of the race. And it says, this is too hard. I can't surrender that part of my life. I won't surrender that part of my life. Into this reality, again, our text speaks powerfully. Let's pick up where we left off. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I think the response here to that, to that voice that says it's too hard, it's too difficult to give this up, I think the response is twofold. First, consider again the visual image, right? You're running the race. The crowd around you, the crowd, the cloud of saints is, is yelling their encouragement. And the text says to fix your eyes on Jesus. So where is he in this visual image? Where is he in your imagination, right? He's on the field of play. He's in front of you. This is a really powerful statement. It's a reality that the author of Hebrews wants to sink down deep into your heart. Jesus here is not a casual observer. He's not even the first one in the stands as your chief cheerleader. He's there with you in the race. He runs before you. You can fix your eyes on him. He is with you. 
I think of the words of 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In this struggle against sin, he is with you. Some of you know that I enjoy a good run myself from time to time. Uh, it was a pandemic hobby. It was something I picked up then, and it's, it's uh, continued so far uh, through. We'll see how it goes. But um, last summer, I made the choice to test myself with a time trial. Time trial is just a race that you do by yourself against the clock. It's, it's a lot of fun. Not all the fun of like having all the people around you, but just by yourself and painful. <laughs> Um, I determined the distance I wanted to cover. I determined the time I wanted to try to hit. Spoiler, I did not, I did not get the time. Uh, still working on it. That's not what this story is about. Uh, in the weeks leading up to this effort, I contacted a friend of mine who is a much more experienced runner. He has uh, been running for far longer. He is much faster than I am. And I, I reached out to, to get some advice, particularly on where in the city I could do this run to avoid traffic lights and, and things. And as I started the text with him asking questions, uh, he provided all sorts of helpful information. He was getting back to me and telling me, oh, this place or that place, and giving me advice about the run. And it was great. It was exactly what I was looking for. And then in the midst of our texts over a few days, uh, he then surprised me, and he offered something that, that really was exciting. He offered to run with me. Want a pacer, he said. Of course, I eagerly accepted. During the run that day, we ticked off the distance, and he carried water for me. He reminded me to stay hydrated. He kept his eye on the pace, made sure we were going the right pace to try to hit our goal so I wouldn't have to think about it. It was so helpful. But as we entered the final third of the, of the race, of the run that day, he changed how he was helping me. Being an experienced runner himself who had done many of these kinds of efforts, he knew that in the last third of the race, that was where I was really going to start struggling. That was where I was going to have a hard time. And so as we entered that last third, he had, been, he had been running next to me the whole time, but as we entered that last third, he said to me, all right, there's only two things you need to think about in this last part. First, my left shoulder. And second, that your body is more capable than you think it is. And he pulled ahead of me, he parked himself right in front of me, and ran, ran leading me. You better believe that for that last part of the race, my eyes bore a hole in my friend's shoulder. My eyes were fixed on him. This is what Jesus does for us. He is not a sideline observer, a coach, sending you helpful text messages, giving you advice in the race. He is an in-the-race companion, and when the going gets tough, he plants himself firmly in your view, and he says, all you have to do is keep your eyes on me, and I will empower you by my spirit beyond your own capacity. As we run behind Jesus, we will receive the greatest benefit if we truly consider who it is that we run behind. He's not just anyone. He is the one who has suffered the most in the race of faithful endurance. He has paid the greatest cost 
to endure. I think sometimes uh, we can think of Jesus as sinless, which he was, but we can think of that sinlessness in a sort of superhuman way, right? He floated above it. Yes, he was tempted. Uh, Yes, he had to overcome that, but it wasn't hard for him. Counter to that idea, that lie, the author of Hebrews says earlier in the letter, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. C.S. Lewis uh, expands on this idea in Mere Christianity in a way that I think is, is very helpful. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army, right? He's writing during World War II. You only find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. I asked you a few minutes ago to think about something in your race right now, something in your life of trying to be faithful to Jesus that feels like a weight, something that's clinging to you, that's holding you back from running. I wonder if in your imagination you can realize the fact that Jesus was tempted in every respect as you are. that he struggled against the core, that same core of temptation that you struggle with. Maybe not, of course, in its outward manifestation. He lived in a different culture and time, but against the heart of that. Do you consider that he also struggled against the temptation to attain image, to be seen or loved in certain ways by those around him? that he struggled against the temptation to cope with stress or anxiety or the heaviness of others' dislike by giving in to greed or lust or anger? Do you imagine that he struggled against sloth and self-centeredness and on and on in every respect? I think it would be so helpful if we would enter into that place of imagination and realize, meditate on the reality that the one that we run behind, the one that we fix our eyes on, has not crossed this road in some kind of abstract way, but he has run it in its detail. He knows how you are tempted. He is with you in it in a way that is beyond any other person's companionship, any other person's way of being with you in it. He, he knows what you go through. 
This is the one who runs with you, who leads you, who promises to empower you by his spirit. Why endure? Not because I can, but because he has. I suspect that this morning with all this talk of the race, with all this talk of endurance, that you might be feeling exhausted. Maybe you came in this morning already feeling exhausted from the race and hearing about this just feels like another thing to strive for, just feels like another, another thing to put on your checklist. I've got to work harder to race the race, to run and to endure. And so we all need to hear this, this final word that I want to focus on from, from this passage. Picking up in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Have you forgotten who you are in the race? Are you running as a hired hand in the house of God, attempting to prove your place? You and I are children in this house, beloved sons, beloved daughters. You run in the footsteps of the one who has already spoken his word of grace over you. Already, you are called a child of God in the race, a son, a daughter, not at the finish line, but in the race. I suspect that often we become burnt out, worn out, because we labor under difficult circumstances. But we labor under those difficult circumstances in an attempt to prove ourselves, to make ourselves and others believe that we are worthy. This word says to us that we can labor, that we can run as beloved children of the Father. Why endure? Because I am a child of God. I hope that we can go from this place with renewed imaginations. This is a text with uh, an image at its core. I think that so much of what it wants to communicate to us isn't the propositional ideas, but actually a renewed imagination. As you walk, what would it be like as you walk around your neighborhood, as you walk around your place of business, as you walk around your home, to keep in your mind that image of running the race behind Jesus, being cheered on by the cloud of witnesses. To remember that you are not sitting in obscurity, that you are not alone, that your obedience is not inconsequential, that you are not disqualified by your failure, but rather that you are welcomed as a child of God who runs after Jesus and is surrounded by the cloud of witnesses. May it be so. Amen.